Thank you so very much, Kathy, for that special prayer, and thank you for the great music this morning. I'd like to extend our sympathies today to uh, Lowell and Lynn Hinsela. This past week, Lowell's younger brother passed away, and the services were in Alaska. It's very difficult to lose a younger brother, and so I'd like to take just a moment and ask for the Lord's comfort and care for Lowell and Lynn and their family. Let's pray together. Father, uh, we just come before you, and our hearts today go out to Lowell and his family as a younger brother has passed away. Lord, uh, Alaska is a long way off, and I'm sure for many they're unable to be there for the memorial time, and Father, um, we're so uh, looking to you in times like this. You are an ever-present help in the time of trouble. Uh, Lord, you uh, comfort those who are in times of loss and sorrow, and so we just very much lift up Lowell and Lynn and each member of the family today, and we just pray that uh, the wonderful promises of the Lord and the salvation that we have in Him would comfort their hearts and encourage them. And we pray that you would meet the needs in their younger brother's family. So thank you uh, for uh, the privilege of being a part of a church and feeling, Lord, uh, the hurts and the sorrows and the burdens that each one of us carries. And today we lift that family before you. In Jesus' name, amen. It was 30 years ago this year that I heard Pastor John Guest, who was a pastor in Philadelphia, or excuse me, Pittsburgh, preaching over the radio. And the one thing I remember that he said in the message was this, all change begins with repentance. That struck me very much that day. I'd never quite heard it like that. And why is this true? Well, one reason it's true is because of the very meaning of the Greek word repentance itself. The very word repentance in the Greek language literally means afterthought. And you know when you have an afterthought, that means you have changed your mind. So repentance literally means change of mind. Now clearly, we can never change until our minds change, right? It is the change in the mind that leads to the change of heart that produces a change in the life. In the 1500s, when Martin Luther began the Protestant Reformation, he published his famous 95 Theses. And those 95 Theses shocked, sent shock waves throughout all of Europe. The very first one that he published has to do with repentance. And it's well that we would be reminded of what Martin Luther wrote so many years ago. Let's read together Thesis 1 of the 95 Theses. Would you join me? Our Lord and Master Jesus Christ, when He said, Repent, willed that the whole life of believers should be repentance. 
Repentance starts when we turn to Jesus and are saved. We call that becoming a believer, becoming a Christian. But it does not end there. Since we sin throughout our entire Christian life, we need to constantly repent. Not to be saved again, but to live as Jesus has called us to live as His followers. The late R.C. Sproul speaks so helpfully as he reflects on this and explains it to us. Listen to what he says. Though repentance begins with salvation, it is an attitude and action that must be repeated throughout the Christian life. As we continue to sin, we are called upon to repent as we are convicted of our sin by the Holy Spirit. When was the last time that I sinned? That was the last time I needed to repent. When was the last time that you sinned? That was the last time that you needed to repent. This is actually one of the safest things in the entire Christian life because an ongoing life of repentance each and every time we sin keeps us from being comfortable with sin. And no Christian can ever live effectively in the Christian life if they are comfortable with sin. And so Martin Luther was absolutely right. The whole life of believers should be a life of repentance. Now, what is repentance? If this is so critical to effective Christian living, how are we to understand what repentance is? Well, this morning, that is the issue as we continue looking at the path to reconciliation in the life of Joseph. Today we come to this most remarkable speech by Judah before his unknown brother, Joseph. And Judah's speech is a model of a repentant heart. In fact, I would say to you this morning, the speech we are about to look at rivals the speech of the prodigal son. You can put these two speeches together and they reflect the same repentant heart. Listen to what Martin Luther said about this speech we're going to look at this morning. He said this, I'd give very much to be able to pray before our Lord God as well as Judah prays before Joseph. What an incredible thing. Now this morning, let's open our Bibles to Genesis chapter 44 and we are going to begin with verse 18. And just as we do, let's bow together for just a moment as we answer this question. What is true repentance? Father, how critical this is for our Christian life. How important it is for us to live effectively for Jesus Christ by ongoing repentance. Teach us now what this means in our life that we might not only please you, but live in a way that blesses others. For Jesus' sake we pray. Amen. Notice with me verse 18 of Genesis 44. Then Judah went up to him. This is his brother Joseph who is unknown to him as this master ruler 
in Egypt. O my Lord, please let your servant speak a word in my Lord's ears. And let not your anger burn against your servant, for you are like Pharaoh yourself. Now let's just stop right there. Here's what true repentance is. True repentance is a self-humbling before God for mercy and forgiveness. When we have really repented of our sins, it is reflected in a self-humbling before God that desires His mercy and His forgiveness. Now what Judah did here was actually at great risk. You did not approach a monarch like this without an invitation. And I want you to notice how respectful Judah is as he approaches this unknown monarch to him. He says, you are like Pharaoh yourself. So he knows Joseph holds all the power of life and death. He holds the power to forgive and he holds the power to condemn. Notice that Judah two different times refers to himself in the third person. He uses the phrase, your servant, rather than me or I. There's no demanding here, is there? There is no, let me speak, let me talk. By the way, when a person has truly repented, they do far more listening than they want to do speaking. And then he calls for Joseph's patience. He says, please, don't let your anger burn. And then when he says, oh my Lord, he acknowledges, I'm in a position of weakness and need. This man before me has total authority and total power. Let me ask you this morning, what is the motivation behind this approach by Judah? Well, obviously, he's not only fearful that he will be captured and condemned, but more important than that, he is a broken man. He is a man who is under conviction. He knows that he is guilty, and he knows that God has exposed his sin, and he not only not want, does not want to be punished, but he desperately wants mercy and forgiveness. Let's just stop here for a moment. Did you know that humility is the chief virtue of Christianity? Uh, let's look at a verse this morning that really drives this home to us. It is Ephesians 4, 1 and 2. Let's read it together. Join me. Walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called with all humility and gentleness. Now, if you know the book of Ephesians, you know that this is the part where our duties as a Christian start. Chapters 1 through 3 are all about what we've received when we trust Christ as Lord and Savior. We have been the recipients of the riches of His glory in Christ Jesus. And now when we come to Ephesians 4, 1 and 2, we are now told what our duties are as we live for the Lord. And the very first one, humility. 
By the way, gentleness flows right out of that, doesn't it? Humility is the spirit, and wherever there is the spirit of humility, gentleness will be the result. So clearly the Bible is telling us the very first virtue in the Christian life is the virtue of humility. Therefore, it follows repentance always starts here. Repentance is a self-humbling when we know that we have sinned against God and others. All pride, self-righteousness, Self-opinion, defense mechanisms drain away from the person who is repenting. And we admit our failure and confess how unworthy we have acted before our God. A number of years ago at the pastor's conference in Chicago, we heard the Bible teacher Steve, Steve Farr speak in a message to us as pastors. He wrote a book for men, and in that book, this is what Steve Farr says, Genuine repentance is always accompanied with great remorse. It's an attitude that says, if I had to do this over again, I wouldn't do it. I wish I could go back and change it, but I can't. Think about that in our own lives. I wish I could take back that word that I said. I wish I could take back that reaction. I wish I could take back that decision. I wish I could take back that action. We can never feel that way without a humbling coming to our souls. When we are in that place where I wish I could take this back, but I can't, it must always lead to a self-humbling. This is where repentance begins. Now let's continue here with Judah. Let's notice the second thing, that true repentance confesses, not excuses the pain our sin has caused. Would you listen now as he continues? Here is a man who for a new time in his life has started to see the pain he has caused. Look at verse 19. My Lord asked his servant, saying, Have you a father or a brother? And we said to my Lord, We have a father, an old man, and a young brother, the child of his old age. His brother is dead, and he alone is left of his mother's children, and his father loves him. Then you said to your servants, Bring him down to me, that I may set my eyes on him. We said to my Lord, The boy cannot leave his father, for if he should leave his father, his father would die. Then you said to your servants, Unless your youngest brother comes down with you, you shall not see my face again. When we went back to your servant, my father, we told him the words of my Lord, And when our father said, go again, buy us a little food, we said, we cannot go down. 
If our youngest brother does not go with us, we will not go down, for we cannot see the man's face unless our youngest brother is with us. Then your servant, my father, said to you, You know my wife bore me two sons. One left me, and I said, Surely he has been torn to pieces, and I have never seen him since. If you take this one also from me, and harm happens to him, you will bring my gray hairs to evil down to Sheol. Do you know this is the fourth accounting now of the first visit to Egypt? If you read through chapters 42 up to 44, four times this visit to Egypt is accounted. So now what we just read is the fourth rehearsing of the family details and the family history. But what is new about this retelling? Judah tells the story through the eyes of his father, Jacob. If you were counting, you saw that he used the word father 15 times. He gets more personal as he goes. Seven of the 15 times he says, my father. Judah now sees things through his father's pain. And he now sees things in a way that his father felt and was impacted. Brothers and sisters, this is a huge change in these brothers. This is a huge change. Look at these changes that Judah is reflecting. Number one, we caused our brother's death. Did you notice that in verse 20? He says, his brother is dead. This is the first time that the brothers admit what they had thought all along. After 22 years of what they thought was Joseph being a field slave in Egypt, the hard labor, the whippings, the beatings, surely now they believe Judah, Joseph is dead. Whose idea was it in the first place to human traffic Joseph as a slave? It was Judah. And Judah is now certain He has been the cause of his brother's death. Notice also, we love our Father who still loves us less. Did you notice that the favoritism of Jacob still continues? Look down at Jacob's attitude that is reflected in verse 27 by Judah. Your servant, my father, said to us, You know that my wife bore me two sons. Can we pause for just a moment? Jacob had twelve sons, not two. He had four wives, not one. The favoritism is continuing this time towards Benjamin. 
And remember the reaction earlier when the favoritism was before Joseph. It caused jealousy, hatred, plots of murder, and violent actions. And did you notice what Judah said about his father's attitude towards Benjamin in verse 20? His father loves him, not me. Not me. Look at this. What a change this is. We love our Father who still loves us less. Can I ask you this morning, what is the difference now? Please hear me carefully. When we've dealt with our own sin, we no longer have room for vengeance on others. Whatever they're wrong against us, we know that we are responsible for our wrong. This is an amazing change in these brothers. Listen to what they are saying. Though our Father still loves us less, we have no right to hate Him or the favored sons. They are saying that sin never is an excuse for more sin. Listen, I want to say to us this morning, when we give up a grudge, because we know the grudge itself is sin, we have truly, truly repented. And then look at this. We don't want our Father to suffer like we caused Him to suffer before. Verses 28 and 29 recount the original scene where Jacob is reflected back 22 years earlier. And he said, one left me. And here's what Jacob had said. Surely he has been torn to pieces and I have never seen him since. And then he says to his brothers, you can't take the youngest brother now, Benjamin, because if you do, if harm happens to him, you will bring down my gray hairs in evil to the grave. Do you know sometimes a painting captures a scene better than words? And back in the 1600s, there was a painter who painted this original scene. His name was Jan Livens. And he painted this painting in the 1600s. It is entitled, Jacob Receiving Joseph's Bloody Coat. For 22 years, Jacob had lived with this image. Let me ask you, who could ever get over this? Who could ever get over your son's coat being brought to you, all ripped up and bloody, and then without him knowing, the brother's lying to him. Your brother has been devoured by a wild animal. Who could ever get over not having the body to bury it, realizing that it would never be discovered or found again? 
But now I want you to listen to this. For 22 years, Judah had lived with this echo. Surely he has been torn to pieces. 22 years, that echo had resounded in his ears as his father wept. Surely he has been torn to pieces. And Judah had steeled himself against his father's grief for all those years. He refused to be moved, but no more. No more. His heart has now been changed. Let me say to us, as long as we see our sin through our own eyes, it's easy to excuse our sin, isn't it? As long as we are looking at it just from how we see it, how easy it is to rationalize the wrong that we have done. I've shared with you in the past that in my first pastorate, I told a half lie to one of the dearest ladies in her church. She was very hurt. She saw right through it. She refused to come to church as a result of it. And at first I excused it. I I thought, you know, it wasn't really that bad. She's just simply overreacting. But finally the full weight of what I had done hit me. And when it did, I saw the sin through her eyes. And when I saw the sin through her eyes, it crushed me. It crushed me. How could I as a pastor have done this to her? I could no longer excuse what had now crushed me. And I sat down and I wrote the most heartfelt letter of repentance that I had ever written in my life. Much reconciliation never happens because we will not see ourselves and the pain we've caused through the other person's eyes. But when we begin to see our sin as God sees it and as others have felt it, then we truly repent. So let's continue on with Judah. Notice number three. True repentance determines to change from the past sins. True repentance determines that we're going to change from the past sins. Look at verse 30. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your servant, my father, and the boy is not with us, Then as his life is bound up in the boy's life, as soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant our father with sorrow to Sheol. Have you noticed in Joseph's life narrative that there are three phrases that have been repeated? And when you put these three phrases together, what you see is a tremendous change in Judah's life. Let me give them to you. 
Back in chapter 37, verse 35, when the brothers came with the bloody coat and lied to their father, he said, I shall go down to Sheol to my son in mourning. He was referring to going to the grave, unable to overcome the pain and grief that he had experienced. Judah heard those words. Now in verse 29, Judah says, This is what my father said, You will bring down my gray hairs and evil to Sheol. Judah repeated those words. But now look at verse 31. Judah says, We will bring down the gray hairs of our father with sorrow to Sheol. Judah owns those words. Do you see what's going on here? Judah heard the words. Then he repeated the words. Finally, he owned the words. He is saying, we will be guilty of causing our old father to die in sorrow. We've caused that kind of pain once before. We don't ever want to cause that again. Notice, Judah's concern is no longer for himself. It is for his father. What an amazing change this is. This is true repentance. Some time ago in the devotional, Our Daily Bread, they repeated the words of an unknown author. And I want you to listen to what this unknown author said. There is a natural, radical distinction between natural regret and God-given repentance. The flesh can feel remorse, acknowledge its evil deeds, and be ashamed of itself. However, this sort of disgust with past actions can be quickly shrugged off, and the individual can soon go back to his old wicked ways. None of the marks of true repentance described in 2 Corinthians 7.11 are found in this behavior. What are those true marks of true repentance? Would you read them with me? 2 Corinthians 7.11 is describing what Judah and his brothers now have come to Let's read them together. For observe this very thing, that you sorrowed in a godly manner. What diligence it produced in you. What clearing of yourselves. What indignation. What fear. What vehement desire. What zeal. What vindication! In all these things, you proved yourself to be clear in this matter. Those are the marks of true repentance. And only God can give this kind of repentance to those who have truly come to love Him. 
Why is Judah now speaking in terms of words like this? Because he has truly come to love his father. He has seen the pain of his sin through his father's eyes. He is now a broken man. And he is now determined, I will change from the past. I will be a new man. Only God. Only God can give this kind of repentance as a result of our love for Him. Notice finally, number four. True repentance willingly rights the wrongs no matter the cost. No matter the cost. Look at verse 32. For your servant became a pledge of safety for the boy to my father, saying, if I do not bring him back to you, then I shall bear the blame before my father all my life. Now therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the boy as a servant to my Lord, and let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father? If the boy is not with me, I fear to see the evil that would find my father. Judah now offers to be the sacrifice in place of his brother Benjamin out of his love for Jacob. Think about this. The worst scoundrel who said, Let's sell Joseph. Now says, take me instead of Benjamin. A son who can say this is a son who really cares. Judah is a transformed man. Love has now replaced hate. And whenever love replaces hate... We will want to remove the evil no matter how much it may cost. When love has removed the sin that we have committed and the hate or the wrong that led to it, we will then want to remove that evil no matter the cost. As my old professor Tom Constable says, this now is the supreme proof of Judah's repentance. Can't we all think of times like this in our lives? I remember one day as a, a little boy, I was in my pastor's home. And I was there playing with the pastor's children. There were some scenes that had been colored in. And I noticed on the one scene that there was a, a, a little crayon thickness that the crayon had left behind. And I thought to myself, I'm going to remove that and improve this picture. And I took my fingernail and removed it. I smeared it. And immediately I thought, oh no, what have I done to this picture? I felt awful. I didn't know what to do. Later in the day, the pastor's wife saw it. She had been the one to color the picture. And she said, who smeared this picture? She began to speak the names of her children. And I sat there thinking, I'm safe. I'm safe. 
She'll never know. I can apologize to God and move on. I knew. I knew. I had to make it right with her. I don't know how old I was. Nine, ten. But it was one of those moments I had to say, Mrs. Pease, I did it. And I'm sorry. We all know. We all know. Repentance has to lead to righting the wrongs. Do you know this is the first instance of substitutionary sacrifice in the Bible? When Judah says, take me instead of him, it is the very same word that is used when Abraham sacrifices the ram in the place of Isaac. Remember, Abraham is ready to bring down the knife into his son at the request of God. And at the last moment, God stops him and says, Don't do it. Now I know you love me. And the Bible says that there was a ram who was in the thicket who had been caught. And Abraham sacrificed the ram instead of Isaac. Now, this is the very same expression where he says, Please let your servant remain instead of the boy. The first instance of substitutionary sacrifice in the Bible. By the way, who was Judah's greatest descendant? It is Jesus. And he became a far greater sacrifice, didn't he? Judah was a guilty man substituting for his innocent brother. Jesus was an innocent man substituting for you and me. Let's read together what God intends us to see. Join me as we read 1 Peter 2.24. He Himself bore our sins in His body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness. By His wounds you have been healed. And it is only because Jesus bore our sins and healed our souls that we can have the power to repent and bring healing to others. It is only because Jesus bore our sins and healed our souls that we can have the power to repent and bring healing to others. Let's bow together, shall we?
as our heads are bowed and our eyes are closed. Would you say to the Lord, thank you for what you've done for me. Thank you for taking my place, forgiving my sins, and healing my soul. And would you also thank the Lord for the evidences of true repentance in your life that have brought you to Jesus as Lord and Savior and then have caused you to humble yourself Admit your wrongs rather than excuse them. Determine to live a new life and right the wrongs of the past. And would you thank Him that the whole motivation for why you live that way is because love has replaced selfishness, hate, jealousy, pride, and all the rest. And if there is some area in your life that God is speaking to you, tell Him now, that you will follow Him in true repentance until it has been made right. Knowing that as He did not leave the brothers alone until they came to this place, so He will not leave you alone in His mercy and grace till you have come to this place. Lord, we love you today because you first loved us. Draw us to your loving side that we might live differently. For Jesus' sake.